so if you see, if you come to this class, you don't have to see the movie. And I will say, uh, fair warning, I will spoil the movie. I, I am a firm believer in reading the last page of a book because I actually think if it's worth reading, then you know I'll know it based on the last page. And a good ending is worth experiencing twice in in advance, and then also again the second time. And so what I would say about this movie, yes, it's incredibly hard, an incredibly difficult movie, and I realized in retrospect that the three films that I chose for this year's Oscar series are all very difficult films. Last week we looked at Spotlight, which is not a happy, let's go to the movies and feel great about ourselves kind of movie. Um, this week we're looking at The Revenant, and then next week we're going to look at Mad Max Fury Road, if you can believe it. And let me just say my disclaimer, I do not endorse any of the language or any of the violence <laughs> or any of the sexuality depicted in any of these films, of course. But looking into them, what we can find, we can find truths spiritual truths that um, that sometimes even the director didn't intend to be in the film. So um, we'll look into what, what we can see about that. How many people have seen the film, first off? A couple people. And the rest of you, you're off the hook. You don't have to see it. One, one reviewer for The Guardian said, this movie is as thrilling and painful as a sheet of ice held to the skin. Would you agree? I feel the same way. I had to close my eyes at several points most notably at the bear attack scene. Well, this film, it's, um, the director is Alejandro Inaritu, who is a stellar Mexican director. He has done a few films in English, including um, Babel and last year's Birdman, which won uh, the Oscar for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. It was a great film. It was a weird film. It was funny, it, uh, if you have a bizarre sense of humor, and, um, and it had some of Inuretu's directing hallmarks in it, which we also see in this film as well. And so it's so intriguing to me. I actually think that Inuretu, the director, along with the director of, cine of photography, the cinematographer who we saw in that clip just then, his name is Emmanuel Lubezki, um, I think that they are both free. They're free to lose. And that's one of the reasons why they created such a beautifully depressing and um, depressingly beautiful film that actually ends on a good note, if you can believe it, after all the violence. Well, so this film was shot in Canada and Argentina. It's nominated for 12 Oscars, including, once again, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematographer, and Best Lead Actor. Leonardo DiCaprio does a great job in this main role of Hugh Glass, and this main role he actually doesn't speak for most of this two-and-a-half-hour-long film, and yet still he got nominated for Best Actor. It's a good sign when you see that. And with my acting background, I would just say it's, he's fantastic. He is able to communicate with his eyes such depth. Um, you can tell there's so much going on inside. He really has entered into the world of Hugh Glass. So Hugh Glass is the main character. And if you see, um, it's based on, sort of based on, real events. And this approaches one of Inaratu's favorite themes. We'll get into that in a little bit, too. But Hugh Glass was a fur trapper and an explorer. He was mauled by a grizzly bear in 19, or excuse me, 1823, which I was thinking that when I first saw the film, I thought it was like 1850s or 1860s. 
1823, really early, early on, um, he was on an excursion, a fur trapping excursion in what's now um, North and South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana area. And the team, at the very beginning of the movie, the team has to split up after an attack by natives. And so most of them return to the base. Um, and, um, and as they're there on their way to return to the base, you see some of the conflicts within the group. There's a little bit of mutiny happening. Um, you see some of that. There's a little bit, bit of that that they play out, Inara 2 plays out. And while they're waiting, they're traveling, you know, they stop to go and hunt for, for lunch. And, um, and Leo, Hugh Glass, is out there and he hears the sound, and the film is so amazing, all the different sounds of the forest. You hear the snuffling of two bear cubs. And you begin, as the viewer, you brace yourself for what happens. It's amazing in the cinematography. It just blacks out for a minute. And then you see this mama bear rushing at Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Very early on in the film, he's totally wounded by this bear. It's painful. I had to close my eyes a lot during that scene. But the, the team recovers him. They um, sew him up a little bit and put him on a stretcher. He didn't die miraculously from this bear attack. And they start to continue to try to get back to their base, always in fear of the natives who they're afraid will come and get them. And, um, and a couple from the, from the team are told to stay with Hugh Glass to give him a good Christian burial. He has been the one leading the group in terms of navigating. And so the captain of the group says, you have to stay with him. But the most unsavory character imaginable is the one that stays with him. And that's played by Tom Hardy. His, um, his name in the movie is John Fitzgerald. And, um, and Fitzgerald's supposed to stay there. He's there with uh, Glass's son, who is, in this film, Glass's son is a, a half-native whose mother is a Pawnee Indian, and he is half Indian, half uh, Anglo. And so that's another dimension to this story. Fitzgerald is just this villain extraordinaire, and um, all that to say he betrays Glass. We don't go into the particulars of it, but the way he betrays him is horrible. He buries him alive and leaves him for dead. Partly he's afraid of getting captured by the Indians but he and, and killed, but he is um, so dastardly in doing that. He betrays him, and he keeps moving on. So there is some history behind this story. Hugh Glass was a real person who existed, as far as we can tell, who really was attacked by a grizzly bear in 1823 and survived the attack. Um, there have been so many poems and songs and films about this character. The Song of Hugh Glass in 1915, um, the novel Lord Grizzly in 1954, the 1970 film Man in the Wilderness, um, all of these different takes on this historic event that got more and more embellished the, the more time goes by. And Inaretu adds to the embellishment. So we don't really know what is fact and what is fiction, and this is one of Inaretu's hallmarks as a director. He wants us to keep questioning and asking what is real, what is reality. Um, and so all of this to say uh, glass is buried alive, and then he, he comes to and most of the film is played out after he has come back alive, after he's been buried alive. He scrambles out of the grave 
and he keeps going and he is so fueled by his passion about this injustice that's been committed against him and against his son that he will he will um, go miles and the miles upon miles upon miles and so many different weird things happen to him on this journey and so you see him going um, trying to catch up with the team trying to catch up to Fitzgerald specifically in order to enact his revenge one of the historians who says, who's investigated the story and isn't really sure how much of it is true based on what we have now with Hugh Glass, certainly in this film, the part about his half-race half son, that's completely made up by Inura too. And in fact, the 19, there was a um, draft of the screenplay five years ago where that wasn't even a component. So for those of you who have seen the film, that plays such a huge role in it. It's amazing to think wow, that wasn't even there five years ago in one of the original drafts of the screenplay. So that part is definitely fiction that Inaratu has added in. But this, this scholar and this historian says that, um, that the most tricky thing for dramatists, and here's where I tell the ending at the beginning, so brace yourself, or plug your ears if you don't want to hear. Um, this historian John Coleman says um, all of these dramatists get tripped up trying to explain why he was so driven to destroy the men who left him but then decides to show mercy and doesn't end up killing anybody. That's what all of these good literature and filmmakers can't understand. But Inaratu, I think, it gets to it in a really beautiful way. And so for more, I'm going to approach some of those beautiful ways in which Inaratu gets at this mercy. And what does this mercy look like? What does it mean to let go of revenge? And um, I'm going to do probably a poor job in comparison with a wonderful article that you can find on the Mockingbird website. If you're not familiar with the Mockingbird website, you can go to mbird.com. And there's a great article by Caleb Stallings who goes into the whole imagery of the trees used in the film. And I won't even go there. I didn't even notice what he was talking about. I prepared this class and, and I tried to do this, prepare it first and then read what other people have to say who are really good. And I was like, that's really good. And I didn't catch that. So go ahead and read that and you'll hear some more about the film. Well, um, you heard from Inaratu some of the themes in here that you hear within the tradition of Jack London. You see this brutally savage, horrendously poetic epic all simultaneous. It's got different levels. At the surface level, there's this idea of survival, and you see him surviving despite all odds. That's part of the fiction of it. You can't imagine how he could possibly survive in the midst of all this. And then you see below the surface of that the, um, the loss, the great loss that he's already experienced in having lost his wife and now having lost his son. And it's that loss that drives him on in some ways. It's just below the surface of this will to survive. And in some ways, that's the tension. He wants to survive to see justice enacted. And yet he is so gripped by the ones who've already gone on before that he's almost ready to do whatever it takes to his body because he, he kind of knows he won't survive the journey on some level. So this idea, you see this survival motif. Um, my, my least favorite phrase in the world is the one that Leonardo DiCaprio uses in what you just heard about how this is a triumph of the human spirit. It's totally not a triumph of the human spirit. It's, um, it's actually this driving human need to be in control of justice and to be the enactors of justice that keeps him going despite all odds. And yet at the very end of it, that humanness of his spirit, that 
sinful human need to be the one in control, he's totally deflated of that at the end. So it's actually a triumph of God that his spirit is crushed, even though um, he has survived all this crushing of his body. And so this phrase used for him of a revenant, the title of the film, a revenant is a figure that haunts the living from the grave or one that returns after death or a long absence. Sounds like there are some Christian overtones, don't you think? So we'll look a little bit more at that. I want to start um, by showing again the trailer. You'll see some repeat, you know, some repetition based on um, that little featurette that we saw first. But uh, they always put all the best scenes in the trailer, don't they? But this means you don't have to go see the movie. But to keep an eye out for the beauty in the midst of all of the struggle, because that is one of these themes that the director is highlighting. Sorry about the swears. I always forget about them. I resent that the bad guy has a southern accent. Or he tries to. What happened? We did what we had to do. He was very frightened. Do you see how beautiful the cinematography is? Isn't it gorgeous? I mean, I wish I, I could see a documentary that was all just that and skip all the violence. That is intentional. This beauty of the American West, the unsullied um, West um, back in the frontier days is captured so beautifully by Lubezki. Um, and this paradise, this landscape that's like an American Eden is juxtaposed against the horrors 
of reality and the horrors of human nature, which is present in all of the characters. You see it in every group of people in the film. You see it in the French. You do get to see some French trappers in it, and they're terrible. You see it in the Arikara, or the Ri, which is um, the Indian tribe that's chasing the fur expedition all throughout the film. You see it in the Americans, most notably in the one character, Fitzgerald. And there's this question, who is the savage? The answer appears at one point in the film, scrawled in French, we are all the savages. Uh, savagery is present, that sinfulness of human nature is present in developed cultures, and it's present also in natives as well. You see, there's no, um, there's no clean slate like Rousseau wanted there to be among this noble savage. There is no such thing as nobility um, without human sinfulness. Human nature uh, touches each one of us alike. And you see this evil perpetuated, even though um, it's in this beautiful landscape, you see it perpetuated especially in the person of John Fitzgerald. Um, one reviewer says that he's got villainy laced with traces of humanity. He really is one of those villains, and it's really hard to have compassion on him which is actually to have a one-sided villain, that's actually a really easy thing to do. So I lament that about this film. I would like for his character to, to be a little bit more complex. He displays a twisted and distorted take on Christianity. He has a bad southern accent, darn it. And he betrays over the course of a couple of different scenes that he actually doesn't believe in God or at least not in a God that he can't control. He has one interaction with the young man that he has deceived into also betraying Hugh Glass. He has this interaction, they're eating a squirrel that they've captured um, to, to over dinner, and he tells this story about his father thought that God was a squirrel, and then he went and ate the squirrel. It's complicated, and I, didn't, I couldn't find the script because it wasn't in the only one online found in 2010, and I wasn't going to go back and watch the movie a second time um, for the two and a half hours. But the bottom line of it is that you see that his vision, his worldview, involves um, I, no God that is really a God in control, in sovereignty over him. He is his own God. He is the maker of his own destiny. And that helps us understand why he takes things into his own um, hands, why he takes um, the, the, the life of Hugh Glass into his own plan, uh, hands. There's an interesting parallel to the fact that John Fitzgerald gets paid for his labor. For those of you who have seen it, remember it's the incentive of getting an extra share in the um, sale of the pelts that drives him on to stay with Glass when he'd rather not. And then it's what drives him on to leave Glass behind and bury him alive. He gets paid for his labor. Sounds like um, 30 pieces of silver, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like Judas. He is unwittingly paid for his betrayal of glass. And then they go so far, um, I, I think it goes a little bit over the top when Inaretu also makes him racist. So it was inevitable. It was going to happen. Um, but one thing about this, about this trouble in paradise, this, um, the evil that we experience as human beings that no one of us is able to really escape, you see it in this one... Um, there's this one beautiful clip, and I'd like to think that it's um, intentional, but it perhaps is not. And I'm going to fast forward. We're, don't worry. We're, if you see the timestamp at the bottom, it says 38. We're not going to watch all that. There's one beautiful moment here. You know, the pulse and the this heart is of the, the director. Rise. 
on the father and son relation. All my films, by some reason, I always have had that. You know, you can have sons or not, but you are a, you are a son of somebody, and that will always define you forever. There is the beauty of the father-son relationship, but I'm going for the image here. We're going to see an image in just a moment. I thought that the father and son story will make a dimension in, in, in the character that will not just be about the gun or about a revengeful thought of you abandon me, but when the filial relation is involved, it just gets a much more powerful understanding of your being and your reason to be. So it was not like just as easy as sometimes they want to see like Indians against white people. No, having uh, uh, Indian blood will make a much more complex situation for both of them in the middle with the Western trappers. Look at this image. This is the one I wanted. When the Do you see the sparks? Wait, let me see if I can get back. It's the only way I could find them. He's right about the father-son relationship. It's a good device that makes him, sorry, I did a lot of this in advance of being here, but there's no way to get it to cue. Look at it. Look at the beauty of the filmmaking, of the cinematography. When you see, um, this is his boy is lying there looking up at the fire and at the sparks flying upward. And this is just before there's something really evil about to happen. I don't even think, this goes to show just how genius this director is. I don't know if he intentionally chose this visual image to accompany what was about to happen next in the film. But that phrase, as sparks fly upward, remember it comes from scripture, from the book of Job. In Job, um, one of Job's companions says, for, as a, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The suffering, the sin, it's present in all of us. And Job here in chapter 5, we hear in the book of Job, Job's companion goes on to talk about justice in the midst of trouble and the awful things that life brings. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Job here, his friend here is saying, yes, there's trouble. Yes, there's injustice in this life. And yet... We look outside of this closed system of the created universe to the one who created it. And we look to him for justice in the midst of injustice. And that's where this idea of revenge that Inaratu has put in this film that's in the story of Hugh Glass, you hear it coming up. The whole question of the film is, will revenge ultimately, as Leo DiCaprio says, will revenge ultimately be the thing that will quench Hugh Glass's thirst at the end of the day. 
Inaratu says about revenge, he says, I truly believe that there's a lot to consider in revenge. The challenge for me was that though driven by the pain and rage that glass has, I wanted to get through revenge, revealing other aspects that could possibly bring the character to realize that there's something better or bigger than that. Or that once revenge is accomplished, it just leaves you empty. And then the meaning of life collapses because if that is your driving force, then nothing that you do to damage other people will satisfy you or bring back what you lost. Isn't that beautiful and poetic? I don't know if Inaratu knows the gospel, um, but his film knows the gospel. And he, write, he says later on, the poet might know what he set out to write, what he wanted to write, but he'll never know exactly what he wrote. And what we see in this film is that Inaratu has this sense in which revenge is not enough for a human being. Um, revenge um, will leave you cold, ha ha ha, at the end of the day. And he, is, he, he shows this in this film. So Glass proceeds to hunt down Fitzgerald, and after a few bloody fight scenes, Glass has Fitzgerald at his mercy. I told you I'd tell you the end. And he knows he might not live much longer after this long, arduous journey, after fighting this duel. Um, and he stops short. He stops short right at the precipice of achieving his revenge, seemingly because he does trust in God, in a higher power, something from outside of him. He believes that there is something from outside of him that will achieve the justice that he seeks. His um, enemy, Fitzgerald, says to him, taunts him, the Lord knows what happened out there. Isn't that interesting? His enemy calls upon God by name. You came back for revenge, but now he's taunting him. But ain't nothing going to bring your boy back. And Glass calmly responds, revenge is in God's hands, not mine. Isn't that beautiful? His willingness to trust and believe that there is a God out there. Well, what is it in the film that has made him trust this? Um, what is it that helps him trust that God is existing, that God exists, and that he is good? Well, we see that there, um, there is one character that is like Christ for glass. And this one character um, establishes and accomplishes one of Inaratu, the director's goals. Inaratu always has this goal in each one of his films, and this is one of the reasons why I think he's Christian but doesn't know it. Or maybe he is Christian and he's not as vocal about his Christian faith. And that is that he consistently um, portrays a magical realism in his films. If you saw Birdman last year at the very ending, there's this big question mark. What happened? And you could take it very depressingly, but he wants you to have hope that there's some kind of miracle that has happened. And he creates in his films the possibility that miracles happen, the possibility that there is something that breaks in from outside of our closed system. People actually call it magical realism is his brand of filmmaking. And no one likes magical realism. The critics all hate it. They, um, the critics over the years, just a little sidebar, you know, with my Shakespearean background, over the years the critics have torn down Shakespeare for um, some of his use of similar magical realism, a similar um, a device that he includes in some of his lesser-known play plays. I don't know how many of you have read or seen A Winter's Tale or how many of you have read or seen Cymbeline, but these are not the favorite plays of Shakespeare that everyone always puts on and everyone always goes out and sees. And it's partly because um, later critics um, 
postmodern and postmodern critics can't wrap their minds around what is called the deus ex machina, which is a theater device where um, if everything is not resolved, what you do is you have someone from outside of the situation, someone totally new, a brand new character comes in, and it's like they wave a magic wand and everything is now okay. Um, and you see in those two plays that I mentioned of Shakespeare's in Winter's Tale and in Cymbeline, it's actually the Greek gods that break into the situation in both plays and set things aright. All of the random swaps and the things that were wrong and the things that were um, perpetuated throughout the, the play, there in one fell swoop, they are made right. And so critics don't like that then, or didn't like that then with Shakespeare. And critics today don't like that about Inarat too. The New York Times critic, Man I don't even know how to say his name, Manola Dargis, I butchered it, but he says that, um, that he's okay with Inaratu's can-do pragmatism, the triumph of the human spirit, that long external journey and the long internal journey that he, by his own strength, do you hear it? Do you hear that works righteousness, that can-do pragmatism? He's okay with that. What he doesn't like, he says the flash of homespun magical realism is not okay. And in his opinion, that's what makes this a terrible film. In my opinion, that's what makes this an amazing film. There is something that comes into this film from outside of the closed system. And it's involved in, um, in a big picture in the way there are just too many disbelieving rescues. How many times did you see him fall down a waterfall? Did you see that where he started to go down that huge waterfall? Um, not only the bear, first, okay, the bear, then the waterfall, then what else happens? He, um, at one point, he's being chased by a native tribe that's coming to get him, and he um, is riding on this horse. He wakes up miraculously. None of the arrows hit him, of course. He gets on the horse, and he rides, 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 rides all the way off a cliff on the horse. He rides off a cliff on the horse. He survives the horse fall. And this is the other reason you might not want to see it. He then, a blizzard's coming, and he, he digs out all of the intestines of the horse, crawls inside the horse, kind of like Han Solo in Star Wars, right? And he survives the blizzard on the inside of this horse. All of these are very, those are, they're made up, these, these different turns at every step, the ways in which he's miraculously protected and he miraculously survives. That, if you don't believe in God, you, I, I, you can only believe in God, just see that happening, that God is protecting him and providing for him. But then, at the pinnacle of all of that, there is one character that saves his life. He's made it through all of these trials and troubles and miraculously made it through. But then suddenly the gangrene in his wounds is going to get him. And this one magical native, of course, man named Hikuk, arrives. We hear his story. He also has suffered much. He feeds Glass when Glass most needs it. Upon hearing Glass's tale of woe, of all of the sorrows that he's seen, this man Hikuk teaches him through his response. He says, my heart bleeds, but revenge is in the Creator's hands. He's pointing glass towards what glass would eventually believe and hang on to. And he tends to glass's festering wounds by getting out the gangrene. He puts him in this smoke tent during a blizzard. The blizzard covers up glass. And this man, Hickook, there isn't room in the tent for him as well. And he stays outside the tent. And while he's outside the tent, he is captured by the French and hung as a savage. 
the hanged man on the tree. There is such a depth of self-sacrifice in his relationship with glass. There is that swap, just like there is for us with Jesus Christ in some measure here in this story. Because of this man, Hickok, glass lives long enough to get to the fort. I'm going to take a breath, and then I'm going to bring it home in just a minute, but I'd like to ask, do you have any questions? about all this, anything you want to say, any observations, because there's one more way in which glass, some people want to say that glass is a car- like Christ. I think this man who cook is like Christ. Glass is just like us in some ways. Yeah, Dr. Partridge. Did you recognize all of this while you were watching the movie or did you get, get some of this later? <laughs> because I teach, because I do this a lot where I like to teach a, I will notice things in the moment, and I try. if I notice them, I try to write them down so I remember them, or I talk about them so that I can remember them. Um, but some of this is from later slowing down. Usually I go twice to see a film before I teach on it. I, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it twice. But I have to go back now that you taught me a lot. You like that sheet of ice, right? Held close to the skin. Yes. The, his triumph of, yeah. of, and his belief at the end that vengeance is for God and then immediately he puts his adversary yeah. into the hands of someone who he knows will kill him Yeah. and then they, you know the Indians seek vengeance for what you know happened to the daughter right exactly and it triumphs. so yeah. there's a lot of ambiguity throughout the movie I think that's a good point. It's less unambiguous than I'm making it out to be. I think that would be a good point I do think though you know, with his words, because of the way he says those words right to Fitzgerald, and he he repeats almost word for word what that man Hickok showed him. Um, there is a sense in which both of them go to that duel, and they know that neither one will survive. The question is, who will take the final blow? And I do think he's intending mercy um, when he doesn't exact that final blow himself. Um, in some ways, uh, he could survive. I guess the theory is he could Fitzgerald could survive. Just that little wa- dip in the water. <laughs> Glass could survive all of what he survived, yeah. you know. So maybe that's my optimism about it. Indians there and pushed him yeah. in that direction. Or yeah. he pushed him first and then they appeared. I, I, but, uh, I, think, yeah. I think he pushed him first. You think he pushed him? I think, I think, yeah. I don't think he saw the Indians before he put him towards that direction. But, but I do think there's some ambiguity. I do think... Though based on his words, what he's saying, and based on the history, the inner too is trying to get towards this ending where he doesn't actually kill his adversary. You know, that inner too set out to accomplish what, what the myth, the historical myth says about man. Satisfied yeah. and, and gra- grateful that the Indians exacted revenge on the French and yeah. killed the villain ultimately. Absolutely. In the most, you know, in the most you know, painful way. We, we, we love seeing yeah. him you know, die in that, in that very... Uh, we need the justice, don't we? We need to see that there's justice. Yeah, absolutely. And But what I will see too, say, too, is I think this movie is walking close to the line in that it doesn't show the natives as being totally without sin. You know, especially in that first incident where they're chasing down 
the fur party, they're willing to kill and ask questions later when they're seeking out this justice for the daughter of the chief. And I think that's another aspect that Inarai too is in, is, you know, in danger of being unpolitically correct by saying that. You have to be really careful when you deal with, when you depict Native Americans on film. But I do think he's showing there is this human nature, this sin in all of us. Um, I'm going to close it up right now, but stay after and ask me some questions if you want. I want to highlight that last phrase that he says in the trailer that we watched. Hugh Glass says, I ain't afraid to die anymore. I done it already. Certainly that's true of Jesus. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And yet it's true for us as Christians as well. And so I'd put out before you, I think that Hugh Glass in some way is every man. He's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, facing insurmountable challenges without fear. He's not afraid because he has already died. And he echoes those words of Jesus in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Glass does not fear any of these things that he encounters on his journey. You see him rise again and again to meet what he faces, and it's because he's already died. He's been buried, dead and buried. He sounds like St. Paul. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And in fact, we have died, again in St. Paul's words in Galatians, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Glass has been loved well by that one native man that he encounters, even in the midst of all the injustice, all the heartache. And he gives up on this burning desire for revenge, to be the exactor of justice. He relinquishes his illusion of control, like Job. Here is the end of the law, present in this film, the end of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, Jesus said about the end of the law, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Hugh Glass miraculously, um, through death, through having been loved well by a stranger, by a strange man who died um, and kept him from dying, again, again and again, he um, lives with hope. He lives with this um, sense in which the ones he loves are waiting for him, his, his wife, his son. He lives knowing that he will, this sense that there is eternity, that he will see them again. And it allows him to have great courage in the face of insurmountable obstacles. So with that in mind, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, um, we are so glad that we don't have to face what this historical personage, personage who may or may not have done all these things faced. Thank you, Lord, that um, uh, you have set us um, within your own, under your own protection. And even though we do face trials and temptations, even though we face struggles and sufferings, uh, yet we know that we are yours and you are ours that you have bought us with your costly, sacrificial love. We have died to our flesh. Um, we have died to the hopes that we used to have, the hopes for 
control, the hopes for um, power, the hopes for all of those things that the flesh desires. Uh, we know that uh, we have died to those even as we have um, died in you. Our sin is dead and that one day we trust we will rise um, at the last day. And so in this in-between time, we ask that you would give us courage like Hugh Glass um, to face whatever you send our way, knowing how much you love us and what lies in store for us to come. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.